Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 149 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Owen from washedupemo.com and today we welcome David Bazan. David Bazan has always been on my list to be on the podcast. It just took eight years. I always sort of thought he'd want nothing to do with this or the podcast. And as with it, I got over it and I just asked. Well, it worked. And also, fittingly, David has resurrected Pedro the Lion with their first album under that name in 15 years. It's called Phoenix and is out on Polyvinyl Records. It's an amazing, amazing return. David and I talk about his religious upbringing, lots of Fugazi. We talk a lot about music, what it does to us when we close our eyes. We got emo, euphoria, and specifically that journey that music takes us on and what story you end up telling in the end. I really think you'll enjoy, and I was nervous for a lot of this, which you can uh, probably figure out. So, I don't know. I guess it just meant a lot. Thanks to all the Patreon supporters. You help make this podcast happen. If you want to support, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. This is episode 149 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with David Bazan. And the guy finally just got pissed off and he was like, dude, 
we can't play it like six times a day. Just go buy the record. And I was like, the what? And he was like, it's on a tape. You just go buy the tape. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I just got off the phone and went and asked my dad, like, hey, I want to buy a tape by this guy called Carmen. And he was like, all right. So he took me to the Christian bookstore and I bought it. And that was, I guess, about the seven years. The seven years that followed was me mining the what was available at the Christian bookstore and just trying to find something that I connected with as I grew and got more complicated. And it was a fool's errand, as they say. And eventually I was allowed to listen to music outside of that. And that's when everything kind of, that's when I understood the path that I'm on now. What's interesting, I went to school in North Carolina and being from the Northeast and going down there was pretty shocking. Uh, there were kids mm-hmm. that I was at the radio station, you know, would be in a show and there were kids that, you know, were like, Hey, you know, this is the first time that I'm able to listen to this stuff. Like, tell me, it yeah. was almost like they were begging for me to tell them about punk, yeah. tell them about hardcore. And, yeah. and I think labels like tooth and nail or label, you know, solid state with like that. It was like, I can't, I, it was a great entry point. And I think the Christian bookstore and, it's an interesting thing to mention because if you don't realize like that was the only place and for a well, lot of kids, yeah. it just, it, I, it was. I, it's just I funny was to talk to them. Tooth and nail. Yeah, yeah. Way before that. I, right. Yeah. Like it was, yeah. Tooth and nail came. I think I was listening to quote unquote secular music for two years, which is funny to say all that. Um, but when I heard of tooth and nail, um, two or three years. Yeah. All high school. And then I guess when I went to Christian college at the Christian college bookstore, they had the mail. And I was like, Oh, what's this? And yeah. And then eventually put out an EP on the thing. But, um, yeah, it was even before that, which is crazy. There just, it wasn't like there was no good records, but there were very few. And they were not a, it wasn't according to genre. You couldn't just find like three good punk records. That's a little harsh. That's a little harsh to say, but I, you know, it was hard. It, 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 it wasn't until, yeah, it wasn't until I basically heard the Beatles when I was in eighth grade, I found the, the Beatles and that flipped me out. Um, but then I couldn't listen to them after a certain point. Cause my dad heard me singing your blues around the house singing. I'm so lonely. I want to die. And uh, he was like, sorry, bud, <laughs> can't have you, can't have you listening to that. And uh, I was like, ah, oh, damn. How did and, that uh, feel? So then it was another couple of years. I was bummed, but I kind of felt like I understood, like, I don't know. I mean, Christianity is an authoritarian deal. And this is just like my opinion, man. But, um, and I was, you know, I was raised, I, I understood that not that it was an authoritarian deal, but I understood how to interact with authority. And I had like a, I don't know, I just had like a, I was pretty ply, pliable as a kid. And so I just was like, okay, you know, I understood. And I, I guess I snuck it. No, I didn't really do that. Maybe in ninth grade, I kind of crept back into it. By 10th grade, I just straight up asked my dad, like, Hey, can I, can I please like get this Columbia house thing and I'm going to get this U2 record and this cure record and whatever else. And he was like, okay, you can, you know, you're free to go 
find stuff now. And then that was amazing. Fugazi came right away and the cure. And, you know, I liked you two a lot. Um, trying to think what else came right away. Oh, the violent Femmes I listened to a lot. How did you find, I mean, I, I always joke about Fugazi being like every favorite band, the reason you have a favorite band, you know, it's like the, they were Dude. such a, like, what was that like <laughs> when did, did someone hand it to you? Did you see it in a zine? Like what was, what was that moment? It was playing in Brian Glennie's car, the bass player in the first band that the day I moved to, the day I started high school at up here in Washington, we had moved around a bunch in sophomore year. I started high school up here and I was about a week late starting. And the first day I ran into Damien Gerardo, people had been telling us all day, like, you got to run into this guy. Cause he's like a Christian guy who likes punk rock too. And so I ran into Gerardo and he's like, do you want to play in a band? I said, yes, please. <laughs> Let me ask my dad. And so I called my dad from the payphone at school and said, can I go over to this guy, Brian Glennie's house after school? And him and me and Gerardo are, you know, going to do a band, I guess. And my dad was like, yeah, that's cool. And so I think it was in Glennie's car, maybe not that day, but within a month uh, that I heard uh, in on the kill taker was the current newest record. I'm sorry. My bad. Steady diet of nothing <clears throat> was the current new record at the time. And um, I was like, what is this? And initially I had a hard time with Guy's vocals because I was real into melody and the way that my ears worked, it, it didn't really, sometimes it was grating on me. Now I, I look back and I just think like, it's like before you thought beer tasted good or whatever, you know, <laughs> it's just like, I can't, it's hard to imagine. I remember not liking beer, but now it's hard to conjure that. And the same thing with Guy's voice, but I, I really was drawn to the Ian songs. You know, I was paying attention pretty close when uh, In on the Kill Taker came out. And holy macaroni, that is a record. Were, were you playing? Yeah. When did, you, when, when did that start? Seventh grade is when I started playing drums. Okay, so you asked me about getting into music. And uh, it was my dad, my mom and dad. Um, they, my dad was the music pastor at the church that, we, that he worked at and we went to. And then my mom sang in the choir and sang solos sometimes on Sunday. So I just watched them, you know, practice and perform all growing up. And then we took piano lessons uh, from my dad initially and then started taking from somebody who taught more like an immediate students later. So up until sixth grade, I played piano and then I picked up clarinet in like third or fourth grade because I wanted to play saxophone. My dad made me play clarinet first because he was into orchestra. He was like a cellist in orchestras and wanted me to have that opportunity. And the embouchure is, I guess, tougher to get on the clarinet. And if you go the other way, it's a little harder, I guess. I don't know. So the seventh grade rolled around and they had too many saxophones. That was when I was going to switch. So the band director was like, nope, you don't get to switch to saxophone. And I was pretty bummed. I really felt, yeah, I was bummed. And, and then the guy says... My dad says, well, what uh, what else? Do you have any holes anywhere else? And he said, well, we could use drummers. And I just about flipped out. I looked up at my dad like, could I please? And he was like, do you want to play the drums? <laughs> I said, yes. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, man, that was one of the best moves I ever made. Good job. That was, 
was really, you know, it was, I was luck of the draw, obviously, but um, we traded that clarinet on a drum set that day, I think. And uh, I can picture you doing that, David. I can picture you just handing it, like, give me that fucking drum yeah. set right now. <laughs> and it was a garbage <laughs> drum set, you know, it was just like the entry level, I think it was called Westfire. Who cares? It wasn't even a brand name. Yeah, it just... <laughs> And, but the symbols were black. They were like painted black, which I thought was so dope. It was 1989, I think. Um, but yeah, and then and then from there, once I moved to Seattle, I was already playing drums, and so I could play drums in that band. And then when I heard Fugazi, that began probably my most meaningful consumer relationship. Um, I, I obsessed over Brendan's playing. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot about song arrangement and drum writing. And yeah, I mean, that band has taught me a lot of everything. Um, but I was really focused on drums at that point. And um, there's a de- there's a deep intelligence to, to Brendan's playing that is really, I just love it. Yeah, I'm, I, I obsessed over it for so long. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it's interesting, too, to go back to sort of the, you know, the church playing. Like, I was playing guitar, and Sunday I got to play in the church band, and that was a time to practice. That was a time to learn to stay together with people. Yes, I wasn't into the songs, but I still got to play in front of an audience, and I got to church, and I checked that off. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Hey, I went to church. I also didn't pay attention and played. <laughs> it made it but go yeah, by you're faster. Using your talents for the Lord or whatever, <laughs> uh, at least. Yeah. <laughs> but I always thought that was a fun out. It, it's. I mean, you know, it, I got a lot of experience playing drums um, in church, and that's like, um, you know, it's a challenging environment in most cases for drummers because you're trying to do all the stuff that a drummer needs to do, but at a volume that is nearly impossible to pull off. If you got no stick control, you know, which all young drummers have no stick control. So, yeah, I just learned how to be sensitive and listen to the music and be like learning to play appropriately. And for the for the setting and this thing that's going on was a great uh, teacher because it taught me, you know, I was really ready to, to play for the song once I got in bands um, I understood like I can make a flashy drum part and sometimes that's the best thing, but sometimes you just have to hold it down and not draw attention to yourself, you know, and to, that's a, that's a deep musical lesson. And I, you know, you learn that in church pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You're right. Because you're right. You have to have this, you're right. The audience is, they have a thing that they're looking for or listening for. And it's not it, you have to play within those bounds while still trying. Yeah. there is a yeah. I didn't actually never th- thought about it that way <laughs> till now. Yeah, it's like massive limitations. <laughs> and you know, if you're curious or kind of bored at all, you're just trying to like. I was just trying to make it as good as possible. I didn't need to make like play John Bonham beats, but every now and again, you go you go to some church service and the drummer's really on it, and it's just like, damn man, it just makes it cooler for everybody. I think. Um, unless they complain and then you've got that to deal with. So <laughs> fine balance. Yeah. But what you mentioned, you know, Fugazi and U2 and Cure and, you know, being able to dive into that and really start finding out. And I think then, too, 
it was zines, it was mixtapes, it was your you know a friend mm-hmm. playing a song. What about genres and you know independent music? Were was were you aware of that, or was it just what your friends were doing? Because I I grew up in a really small town, and it's not like I had bands coming through, and you relied on yeah. that cool guy in in the school or the guy that always had the records. Yeah, it was really just the people around me. Um, I definitely heard songs on the radio. Um, you know, I heard Pavement on the radio for the first time in 94. It was on a Crooked Rain uh, uh, haircut song, whatever, Darling. I don't remember what it's called. but um, Was it on KEXP? It was like, no, at the time that would have been called KCMU. And I, I wasn't even aware of that. That that was in like 94. Um, it was on the end, um, 107.7, they played pavement. And I, and, and I had heard, so I, I, you know, I read like at the time, like I found out about the flaming lips in spin magazine and they were covering Lollapalooza. And so I found out about the breeders that way, you know, but it was just whatever people were playing and then whatever I could kind of get my hands on. I didn't follow zines so much. Um, yeah, I was more social. Just I think when I was in ninth grade, I had some a buddy. Uh, I heard Depeche Mode for the first time. And yeah, it was just through people playing me stuff um, and then freaking out over you know certain things and maybe buying the tape or at that point, I guess it would have been the CD. What felt good about it? Like what strikes you first in a song when you hear it? I it's it's it usually has something to do with if I can hear that the person has like a perspective the person or or group has like I mean it's all the same chords and beats I mean we're all playing in four four most of the time and like it's all the same shit theoretically but somehow the small little points of view that we exert on these same instruments and these same you know, genres or whatever is, it makes all the difference. And it's just that little spark that tells you that it's like, this is in the folk tradition that you're coming from, but it's, it's coming from a different perspective. Like there's just a different perspective at, at work. And I love that when it's really, really interesting. Yeah. And Fugazi had that for, for me, U2 was almost too much that way when I heard him when I was younger. I didn't understand it was too, it was on the war record. And I was like, a, I was listening to like, like a, like Carmen or whatever. And it just sounded kind of, I couldn't hear the melody all the way. It was, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the way that your grandma can't, that all heavy metal sounds the same to my grandma. Yeah, um, totally. It just was, it was, it was just too complicated for my ears when I was like nine. And then later, you know, I, I, I heard that same stuff and it was like, oh, that that has a perspective that I think is interesting. You know, the, the drums sounded roomy and weird and big and, you know, the guitars were ch- chimey in a way that I hadn't, you know, just, yeah, just some a different take on it. The way that when you hear Roxanne, you're like, oh, I, I might not like this, but like, this is like a twist on the, the tradition. It's like moving it forward somehow. Yeah, I feel like if I can close my eyes and I see a story, and the lyrics could oh. be 
the lyrics could be gibberish, but if you steal, if you still feel a story or it, it, it there's something about closing my eyes. That's what strikes me with a song that I'm, I'm going to a different place. And I think that's the same thing about you being like, it is the same four chords. It is the same, you know, drum beat or whatever, but it's like, it takes you in a, in a different place and it, it, it hits in a certain way. And I, that's how I mean, emotional music or it's more euphoric and that's where i'm saying euphoria is another place and so that's how i, I don't know yeah. if that's ever if you've, if you've ever thought about it that way um i like i like that a lot i think of i i've been wondering about this because it i feel like there's a it's like you're saying story and i think that's a good word even if it's instrumental music there's um yeah, there's like sort of a a place that yeah, it's a, they're telling you something. It's communication and connection. And if you feel and if if when you close your eyes, you feel like you're being taken someplace, shown something. You know, that's a bit it's a bit different. It's just cool. I like that. And it's personal. Yeah, that's I, but music is personal. Oh, it has to be. And I think that's what's that that's that magic part where it's it's talking to you and you could be hearing that U2 song and it could be 15,000 people listening to that song with you but it still feels to you and I think that's that interesting relationship with a songwriter a big stage or a little or a large stage you're able to convey that and I think that's like a gift That is wild oh my goodness <laughs> I, yeah, because the the ones that really work for us as as listeners and as showgoers are ones where you know I'm trying to think if I hear something the first time, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I've heard I heard a Andy Schaaf song live the first time I heard it. It didn't really get all the lyrics, but it took me someplace. And once I understood all the lyrics later it took me further, but into that same place and without understanding. Yeah. Same feeling. But the first time I heard it live, I mean, I, it crushed me. I, I, it was the last song of his set, which was inconvenient for me because the lights went up and I've got tears streaming down my face and it just was such a heavy, heavy song. And, um, and then later, once I got to know the song, I couldn't believe how much the same the feeling was. It was un- unbelievable. Wow. It just conveys it, you know. And, you know, your subconscious is picking up stuff that you're not remembering. I mean, your things are landing. Understanding is happening, but it, you might not be able to articulate it. But, yeah, it's it's really true. It's, yeah, if someone, someone's telling you something, you know. Yeah, and I feel like there's like a secret code. And I think you being a singer-songwriter... And having those mm-hmm. living room shows and having those, maybe it's a bigger show or a smaller show, um, and being able to do that. Did, when did you know that that you could sing and write? When did you know that, okay, I can, yes, you can put songs together, you were drumming, you were playing all these instruments, but you know that moment when you're like, all right, I can do this. Your, in, your inside voice was like, all right. Yeah. When did you know that? Um, in 10th grade. I was I was really interested in music and kind of whatever music I was into from whatever age I started I was obsessed with it you know I would just listen to it endlessly and and once I got a Walkman 
you know, that was it. It just auto reverse just all day long with whatever I was chewing on. So drums were really a great outlet for me to, to think about, a, you know, writing cause you have to kind of, yeah, you got to choose hi hats or ride, <laughs> you know, like even just on the most basic level, like I was practicing making choices about how songs went and um and then i was learning guitar um, a youth pastor showed me a c chord and then i learned some more so- chords off of like this beatles song and like this folks folk song book that had the chord shapes um and then at a certain point my dad once I, we moved to seattle and i was in 10th grade my dad sat me down and said all right let me show you all i know on the guitar and it's a d chord a d major 7 a D um, dominant seven, an E minor, and an A. And so, and he's like, and those are all in the same key. And so you can use those and use them in any order that sounds good to you and just make stuff up. And uh, I was like, okay. And so I sat and I just basically played that. I just messed around on those things. And I wrote a song and I was like, well, that's really fun <laughs> um, and, you know, and meaningful feeling. And I played it for my buddies who I was in that band with. Um, and it was very delicate music. It was, you know, very sappy. And, um, and they were kind of like, that's amazing um, we can't play that song in this band. And I was like, Oh no, no, I don't, I just wanted to show you this song, you know? And, um, and, uh, yeah. And then from then on, I just was obsessed. I mean, I just, I just kept trying and, you know, you don't know what to write about. And, and I got an idea for a few things and yeah, I, once I started writing songs, I just, Oh, I should back up and say in ninth grade, I decided that I wanted to play music for a living, but I was a drummer. So I was going to give lessons and play and, you know, just gig, maybe get in a band or something. And then once I started playing songs, I was like, no, this is what I want to do. And then I just was, yeah. And I just want, that's all I ever wanted to do. I love that. I love in ninth grade. (laughs) It's like, yeah. I mean, it almost helps yeah, your confidence a little bit, too, because that's right. Ninth grade is freshman for high school. It's like a lot of bullshit yeah. getting thrown your way. And to have that and be like, yeah. ah, this, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't asked anybody, but I just I just knew I could be happy doing that because um, I just liked it so much. And it felt like so meaningful. Um, and then, you know, I mentioned it to my folks and they were pretty open to the idea. I mean, that. This, yeah, they they kind of saw where they thought it would go for me, probably maybe someplace different than it's gone. I don't know, but, but yeah, they were they were very supportive right up and through the time when I was saying I want to do the band for a living, you know, if I can, or at least I'm going to quit my job and do it full time as long as I can. And uh, they were extremely supportive of that. So yeah, it was it was a lot of yeah, it was it was cool to know that I wanted something that much and that I would, you know, it's a calculation of like, I know that I'm going to give up certain things for this 
but it just seemed like something I would be happy doing. Being able to sort of dive in and, um, you know, leading up to that, like first EP, um, was there anything Mm -hmm. that you remembered of that journey or, you know, how many songs you got through, or it seems like, uh, you know, you were already sort of writing a lot. Um, and it just, I'm sure that, I guess the question is, were there things that popped up leading up to that, that you weren't aware of, or that you kind of (laughs) were sort of like, Oh shit, I didn't know this was going to happen. Well, for me, the, um, the EP was interesting because after the EP, I kind of, uh, up through the EP, I had this idea because uh, I grew up Christian and I was a Christian and I thought I really understood or I misunderstood the what music was for. Um, I thought it was for, I mean, I was taught to to believe that it was for, it was a vehicle for a message about your faith. Um, and so for me, the Holy P was the most honest stab at that, that I could come up with. Um, I didn't like the premise that it always had to be about my faith. Um, but I figured I'd try to do it the way that it, I thought it was supposed to be done, but just do it kind of on my terms in a way that told a story that seemed more real to me or just not not so cheap and kind of slogany and uh and then after the whole ep i realized that's fine but that's not even a sustainable thing i I just need to be able to write about what's happening inside my body and inside my mind and uh and not not like lay a hand on it in in that way, like to insist, Oh, this needs to land this way or in this way or whatever. And so um, that's what I, I kind of learned. I, I, you know, up through making it's hard to find a friend. I, I was really struggling to f- understand what the role of making art could be in the life of a Christian person. Um, there were certain people around who, were very um, supportive of that idea. And then there were other people who were very threatened by it and wanted to put a lot of restrictions on it. And uh, I was trying to sort out what I thought was right. And so that's what the, the turn to, to be in Pedro the Lion and to sort of to do that, make make records, more than one record. It, it was that process of kind of figuring out like, oh, I might still be Christian, but I, I had to come to the conclusion that 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 can't really, that can't be what this is about. Um, but that was after the Holy P. Yeah. And then getting the acclaim from both worlds is again, late nineties. I was in college in North Carolina. I, I had the Christian kids that knew about you. And then I had not mainstream, but you know, the, the punk kids that weren't both down. Like they were like, oh, we yeah. both, and especially, and I think the third piece was especially the late nineties. I think you know the emo crowd taking a hold of you too. It was almost like the indie, the mm-hmm. emo kids, and the Christian. What was your relationship like? Feeling all of those things, um, and at that same time, because I'm sure it was like a, a push pull. Um, I'm it's it's there was a push pull happening for sure, but it was impossible for me to tell who was who 
you know, got it. Like if I've got a, there's a room full of people. Sometimes we would find out at merch, you know, after the show, like, Oh, you know, I had a bunch of this kind of interaction tonight, you know, where we could tell sometimes if there was more Christians in the crowd, there would be more of a certain kind of interaction, stereotypical of, um, you know, certain Christian people. Um, but, other, but that's all anecdotal, you know, and, um, and so my perception, what I got was, you know, I get encouragement from people and you can tell there's like uptight encouragement and there's just sort of like, dude, I love your band. And like, there's no kind of qualifiers to it. And then there were people who were pretty judgmental about anything that they could kind of come up with. You know, we, from the Holy P on, I was getting letters saying that, you know, like I'm demon possessed or whatever, you know, from Christian people. So at, at a certain point you just learned that, you, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but there's a certain percentage at the bottom who are just dumb dumbs and there's no <laughs> dealing with them. There's you know, no, it's the, I, it's, yeah, the, the trolls, you just kind of let it go. Yeah. You know, it's like the no. Everybody's time will be wasted by this. Like, but you know, and you just kind of realize that. Um, and I had that up. You know, winners. I didn't get too much shit for control. Um, I figured which was most, yeah, which is weird because winners is just straight up critical of Christianity. But I guess I did it slightly enough where a lot of people didn't get it. Um, but. Yeah, control. I definitely got people at every single show coming up and telling me that whatever form of like they were not happy about the direction. Like I shouldn't be saying shit and come on a record. Um, I had some people in Minneapolis tell me that I shouldn't be writing fiction. Um, that autobiographical confessional was the only, I guess, what like acceptable form of expression for a Christian because otherwise it's confusing to people. Um, just like a lot of crazy that's shit. So I mean, that's just straight up Puritan, like Puritan's yeah. belief fiction was lying. <laughs> I'm getting flashbacks to college. Like I'm getting flashbacks to like, some kids that I went to school with. Like you, they were, it was almost, I'm not saying they were possessed, but when they talked, there was like something behind it that I'm like, I wanted to like crack it open and be like, are you there? Cause I hear you, but are you yeah. really there? In that tradition, they call it idol worship, and it's unfortunately just sort of, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> that's what, yeah, it's a crazy phenomenon, and it's the zeal is unbelievable, and, and you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a very idealistic person, you know, like I, I get it, like I, but they were just, they would get, they, their, the conclusions they would come to were so extreme, I, I was shocked every time you know and i would just be like oh well you know we're just have to agree to disagree and they were like no man you gotta change your mind <laughs> and I, I just was like yeah i'm gonna go back into the green room now have a good night you know i mean david talk about that because it it's like every, what did that do because I, 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 I'm pretty, <laughs> you know, I definitely read the bad comments sometimes on the podcast episodes and I get yeah, bummed for half yeah. the day or someone says I suck or whatever the, you know, your coworker says something bad, you're kind of miffed for the day. What, what did that, I mean, how did you, how did you get through that? 
I just, I just, you know, growing up the, the son of a somebody in church leadership, you just saw the whole range of how people are. And so I had a framework for it. I was like, Oh, that's unreasonable. <laughs> you know, they're being, they're just being unreasonable. Um, and expecting things of me or demanding things of me that aren't, that just are flat, not reasonable. So I don't, I'm not accountable for that, you know, and that, that part, that's easy, I guess. Sometimes like, you know, people would on that record, I got a letter from somebody saying that with, this is so great, um, that they got the CD in the mail. They made sure to let me know all this. They got the CD in the mail. They cracked it open before they listened to it. They opened up the lyric sheet, perused all the lyrics, found objectionable lyrical content, (laughs) put the whole thing back together. And without listening to it, just so I would know that they didn't sully themselves with that music. And I, I guess I don't understand. They sent it back to us and wanted the full refund. And it's just like, okay, whatever. Or, Maybe they didn't want to read. I don't know, but it's just like, man, like somebody's got you. You know that you gotta you gotta ease up a little. It's not gonna work out. Um, but yeah, I feel I feel bad for people mostly, and then sometimes I, I guess it gives you rhino skin a little bit. Yeah, maybe more than a little bit, but. Because it's not like a guy coming up to you and saying, oh, that sucked. It had this, like, religious undertone to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know, they were like, we respect you, and we need you to hear, you know, we think that you're one of us, and you're, like, off the reservation. And in the end, I think they had to leave realizing, like, no, I don't think so. I don't think we're the same as you think we are. And around that same time, I mean, definitely late 90s, 2000s, the emo boom, obviously, you know, if it's Jimmy Eat World, Mm. Bleed American, you know, post-Bleed American, that was just, you know, out of a rocket. You're playing, you were playing shows, you know, late 90s, you know, if it's, you know, the promise rings of the world and those kind of things happening. Did you Mm -hmm. feel connected to that scene? And what were your thoughts around it? And that word, you know, pre and post, <laughs> you know, pre all this shit, you know, kind of breaking and then post when everyone's saying the word every street corner. Well, so I had first heard that word in when I was in the band with Gerardo and uh, one of the later forms of this band called uh, Coolidge, which was the same band that I started that first day with with him. But it was, you know, four or five years later, we had kind of morphed and lost a couple members and added a member. And I remember them saying that word and I was like, what's emo? And they were like, basically like Fugazi, but not, not totally. It's like emotional and it's kind of punk. And, um, and then because of Fugazi, there was this sort of like, almost like this new order. I perceived it to like, at the time I understood emo to have this kind of, new order joy division kind of quality to it. Also maybe the way that the baselines were or something, it was a very specific, weird view of the thing. Um, and then the next time I heard it, it was describing sunny day real estate on the pink. Uh, no, no, the, the diary record. Um, and that would have been in the, the late nineties, I guess it was like 95. 
which is pretty, you know, I mean, now what, what do y'all say? That is that second wave. Is that the official dude? My joke with everybody is, is of spring. I fucking hate waves, wave. but yeah, I think right to spring <laughs> first, that world definitely mid nineties was second and people can argue for the rest of them. <laughs> Those were the first two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like Sunday day real estate is sort of like the, the, the pivotal band, I think in the, um, and that second wave thing for me personally, I mean, I mineral and all this is great, but like sunny day was the one that they had a perspective and you could hear immediately. It was so, so strong. Um, and then for me, the pink record has staying power even, which is saying a lot. I think for so many of the things from that era have dated yes. or have, you know, they, they sound a lot more dated than I would have thought. Um, but to answer your question, um, I didn't, because the music, I, I loved heavy music and I played drums in a band of heavy music, but the music that came out of my face and my hands just wasn't heavy. Um, and I wanted there to be a heaviness to it, but, and to me that sort of meant that it wasn't a part of that. So when I made friend, I didn't know what kind of music it was. Um, it just was my weird band. And, you know, there was like a, a, I think at that point I started to understand what slow core was and I hoped that we might have a kindred sort of feeling, but even then I wasn't trying to be in a genre. I just was trying to make my jams the way that they sounded and the way that I wanted them to. And I didn't feel like I squarely fit in, in, uh, like the sunny day. I definitely, you know, I was playing shows, solo shows here and there where Jeremy was doing that. And I really envied his ability to be so dramatic and, um, emotional, you know, the performances were really moving. Um, and, uh, but I just, my personality wasn't really that way the naturally or as that's how it felt. And so, yeah, I mean, it wasn't until we got onto Jade tree that I even, I was surprised that they wanted to sign us. I didn't understand what our music had to do with the, the rest of the music on there, except that Jets wanted us to go on tour. And yeah, I was surprised that we fit. <laughs> um, and then Winners was a little bit more that way. Like I was like, oh, well, I can find, you know, I've started to be able to find the honest way to like ha- make it heavy for me. And then Control was pretty squarely i think i didn't mean to make an emo record on purpose but after the first round of touring i was like oh shit we are an emo band now (laughs) and and then i wanted to change it i was like that's fun but i don't that's not yeah i was like that's why achilles heel was so different i and you know i knew how to make this the the follow-up to that that was like the next in that line but i just didn't I didn't want to be pigeonholed or, or to, to get stuck. Um, I just wanted it to be about the jams that I was making up and not create that expectation with people. Um, do you think, I mean, I mean that, that world and that word evokes that it evokes people running away. Um, there are people that still won't do the podcast because of, because of the word Jeremy Enoch, you know, he, even though, oh. yeah, he won't, he literally, I mean, he hates the name. I get it. So it's it's got this visceral uh, thing to it. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think it was. I honestly don't give a. I don't like you know people hate the word indie now too. I I don't really. It was there is 
there is a way that a, a stro- like a popular musical movement can become, it can, it can cause there to be more sameness than there would naturally be between bands. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep. And I just didn't really want to get into that thing where I was considering, I was thinking about, I felt like if I made another record like that, that you'd just get disappointed people a lot. Like you just sort of prime people to be bummed when you didn't try. What, yeah, it just didn't feel right. I, I guess I don't know really how to, it wasn't the word. Cause even now, I mean, I guess now I'm, I'm just, I don't have guilty pleasures more and more every day. Uh, and so emo, if it's, I mean, it's that pink record is an emo record. It's the best emo record, I think. <laughs> but I mean, if it's going to, if, if we're really just going to use words to describe stuff like that's a, that's a record that I put on now and I love, and it's a, it's a work of tremendous art, but it also doesn't fit squarely in. There is like a, there's like a, a very, the, the most formulaic version of so-called emo and it's uh, it's light years from that, but who cares what it's called? I, I don't care. I just didn't want to be in like a scene or exactly. So that's what I meant. Like being like you you saw it. you you wanted to do other things, but that scene, you know, especially after the two thousands. I think again, you're touring, and did you feel any different? Did you feel like? There was a different. I mean, you definitely had great timing with Jade Tree and get you know being on the same time as Jets and a lot of those bands. You know, I think I think it was, it was great, a great bands, great band. I mean, great that band. label is just. I got to you know hang out with them for a night and just pretty much punished them. But it was just you know yeah. being able to. They it was the aesthetic everything. So I think the connection was great. But you moving on from you know late two thousands and then moving on in your sound, I think definitely people stayed with you, still wanted to follow um, what whatever you were doing, Pedro or or your your solo stuff. But did you did you see any difference um, in sort of some of the kids like again expecting something like the Christian kids coming up to you? Were there people that were saying, I want control again, or I want the other stuff again? I think so. I mean, it wasn't strong though, because we would, we would gain and shed fans with every record somehow. Um, mostly losing. I think we did. Yeah. Like we would notice the new ones and then there were certain fixtures that we just wouldn't see anymore. And there was just less baloney at a certain point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, Achilles heel had one on it that really ruffled, um, you know, caused another wave of Christian fans to just be like, all right, I'm out. Um, and so every, you know, can bolt control and Achilles heel were good for, I don't know, 3000 heads or something. I think yeah. like just goodbye. Um, <laughs> and that's just how that went. And so then there was new people and people getting into it. I mean, I, I didn't, I don't want to, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just not down on, on any of it. There's records that I, that I love from the genre that is considered emo. And there's a whole lot of it that just, uh, just like anything, I don't really care about this. I I just didn't want to be a part of, I didn't want to get, you know what I think it is, is that 
I got to steer. I think I get enticed to sort of, uh, becoming what is around me more. And so I just feel like I wanted to, I don't know. I just wanted to, I don't know. I, I have a weird impulse to just go back out into the desert again at a certain point. And, um, do you know who has that same response? Matt Pond. Oh yeah. 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 He's a weirdo too. <laughs> he said the same thing. He said he's like as soon as it got to a point I wanted to go he I don't even think I don't think he said desert, but it was similar in that I gotta go somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I I feel like my stuff's pretty conventional and kind of predictable anyways, and I it, it, even though it's that way, there is, you know, this kind of like art school vibe where I gotta start from a different place every time. Um, and I got to find what feels honest to me at that point. And, and I might have limitations that makes that honest thing, not always great, but it's gotta be that, you know, and you're Doesn't trying to be great. <laughs> it has to be honest. Yeah. yeah. I was going to mention too about the li- living room shows and I, yeah. I love those. What, what, what does that bring to you and how, what is that feeling um, and I know that's intimacy and everything, but can it get a little deeper? Like what, what about that? Do you like deeper than knowing that there's only 20 people in the room or 30 people in the room? I really like playing shows where I forget about the music industry and my place on the, in the, the hierarchy or whatever. Like there's a thing about going around in clubs and seeing all the posters and, there's just this constant reminder of like, you know, you're, you're struggling to, to achieve something or other, or there's, you know, some kind of thing. And like, I now through house shows have the muscle memory of what it's like to just be able to sh- shut all that stuff out. But there are just little, I don't know, like you're on a conveyor belt when you're on tour in clubs you're on this big giant conveyor belt with a bunch of other bands. And sometimes there's deep camaraderie there, but a lot of times, and it's not band to band, but you're just dealing with an industry that depending on when you're going through, there are tired of their jobs, you know? And sometimes, you know, not everybody's happy to be there. And the house shows offered a really pure experience of just, nothing else exists just these songs that I'm trying to play. And these people, all of us here have made this choice to spend 90 minutes this way. And yeah, it just was this deeply uninterrupted interaction with the the craft of presenting music to people um, in a live setting. And I really loved that. It, It, it it's something I can take with me anywhere. You know, you can, I have it stronger than I've had before. Sometimes there's some environments that still can kind of get your goat and it's hard to find the energy to play your jams the right way. But the more that I've done it, the easier it is. And playing house shows has been a huge part of it because I can kind of summon that feeling I'm just like, oh yeah, all of this shit just gets wiped away and it's just people 
and songs and that and i believe that that is a, a that's a great thing that's a that's a it, that is a privilege and if i wipe away all the bullshit and i get to just see that privilege that we're all getting to have to interact with this tradition of songwriting that we're all a part of and you know we all get to obsess over records if we want to and then check out those songs live and i'm like a piece of that but it's beautiful when it's yeah when it's yeah when the when the industry fades into the distant memory and it's just people and songs that's my favorite part and how shows are fundamentally what that is. And they help me remember how to do that when I'm in, you know, at a winery or whatever (laughs) 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 at a, in the middle of the day, you know, um, that's definitely it. No diss on, on wine. Yes. Oh no, 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 no diss. Uh, but you know, like it's hard to play rock and roll in the middle of the day when every one and like a wedding kind of environment, um, it's, it's weird. And so it's that you need those memories of like, I remember this at its purest feeling and I can bring that here. I think that goes back to that kind of story where you're, you're remembering that story of going to your first thing or playing. You're right. Thinking that there's 20 people at a house. You just happen to be at God knows house of blues venue, number 800. And you're channeling that. Well, and, and so, you know, we've all been at those shows where I'm standing there, I'm in a clothing store in the university district and there's this band and they're shredding and there's nine of us and they're shredding. And I'm looking around and I'm thinking this, there, this is no less of, this is, this is no less of a magic trick for how many people are here. And so I get to, I get to remember that anywhere. If I'm at the house of blues, there's a lot of ways to get distracted from that. But at at the core of it, there's the, you know, you can shred and then there's people that are going to stand there and witness that. And you might not get the same exchange of energy from it or the same confirmation that you would in that intimate space. But that's your, you, you can have space that that can happen because of those moments where you're standing there watching somebody destroy for nine people. And it's it's just like, man, I wish the world could have seen that it would have helped us all out, (laughs) you know, but it's just really, it's just, it's just great. You know, It, it doesn't have to be, but it's those expectations when there's, if there's nine people at a house of blues concert, you know, that's a massive failure and thousands of dollars are being lost. <laughs> um, and it's hard to find that, that feeling like, fuck, we just killed in front of nine people. That was <laughs> rad. You know, yeah. don't forget guys. We just murdered in front of nine people. I, I don't know why I'm using such violent terminology <laughs> for playing. Well, we just had a transcendent moment Yeah, with nine people, you know, I like that. Uh, I want to talk about Phoenix, the new record, uh, first Pedro in 15 years. And I thought, you know, researching this and listening to the record for a long time, Matt and Andy hooked me up uh, with a copy, which was super nice. So I got to kind of sit with it. Yeah, I know. I was like, awesome. Uh, 
I think something that you mentioned and something that I do personally, not just on this website or this podcast about journaling or chronicling or being able to do this, but also, you know, at work, my real job, I do it all day for bands that are super popular. I try to continue their legacy or continue it. But also personally, you know, I had a family member pass away and there are things that in you need to you need to get that from them they're not you're not going to be able to get it again and i feel this urgency to tell to get stories or to chronicle or to write down mm. information and i think that when you kind of talked about you want to explore where you lived and you were talking to you know a a a, a relative like that really hit me because you can't there's a there's a day when you can't get that and it's it's yeah. it's like there's a sense of urgency. So can you talk about that? And was that was was that part of it? And did did I go too far in it? But I feel like that was a really cool route to go from for this record. Ultimately, what drove me to do it was um, a disconnection with myself and going back and retracing steps and and sitting with memories and feeling feelings and finding kindness and forgiveness for myself and other people, um, you know, working through these kind of hurt feelings. Um, it was the, that was the, that was the impetus for the, for the thing. And, and some of that did come from, you know, new hurt feelings, (laughs) um, uh, you know, with family members and just trying to, trying to, you know, trying to find a way to deal with the world ultimately. And the, just realizing like, Oh, there's all of this longing in this place. And maybe that means there's work to do that, you know, things I could find here, thing data that I could understand. And, uh, that's what I wanted to do. Um, was just go through and just basically conjure a bunch of memories and sit and really feel them. And, and then certain ones I figured would spark a, a lyric, lyrical hook or two. And then those would kind of wind up on, on a record. And, uh, you know, all of that, you know, I'm trying to learn, I'm try, trying to find a way to deal with the world. And a lot of it meant just trying to, you know, I have these people around me who love me and who I love them, but we're, we're disconnected. And why is that? And how can we fix that? And I I realized I just had, I had work to do. You know, my garden needed to be turned up and replanted. And, you know, I had, I just had to go in there and, and do that. And it's helped me to connect even through difficulty with, with family members and, um, because I've, I was able to begin to mend that connection with myself. Um, you've, you've talked about sort of, you know, that you were solo and, and alone and there was a revolving door of people <laughs> and to have this again, to be around people, to, you know, do stuff, you know, write, write with Kevin, you know, divine or do something, you know, being mm-hmm. able to, that must've, was that part of dealing with as of, of well, sort of, releasing that and realizing that I needed people around you musically and personally with your family. 
Well, it's really funny. Um, it, it is, it is that way, but it, it's also a little bit more complex than that. Um, uh, because the process that I came back to was one that, um, this is all going to be a tiny bit counterintuitive, but, um, if I start by saying that what I understood Pedro the lion, that Pedro the lion really was, was a process that I used to make friend and winners and control. And that process was something that I think my body was providing for me because of the loneliness that I was, that I, I, I just the luck of the draw, the loneliness that I kind of lived with. And, um, that was a process by which I wrote the drum parts and the bass parts and the guitar parts. And there's this, I, I just love how those elements can interact if you're kind of thinking about them in a certain way. And, um, that was just my joy. And I, and I, I wanted a regular band. And so I gave that up to, in an effort to try to have a regular band because I thought that what was wrong with, why I couldn't have a regular band is because no one wanted to be in a band, especially in the nineties where the singer wrote all the parts, you know, uh, that ain't Fugazi. Um, and so I was ashamed of that and I, and I gave it up. Um, I thought that I would have a better time finding musical partners. Um, but in the process, I gave up this relationship with myself, uh, that, I desperately needed, uh, in exchange for what I thought was going to be relationships with other people. But so when I came back to the Pedro, the lion name, I had already come back to this, this model, which coincidentally would cause me, if I'm making through this model and making arrangements that meant that I would be working with other people, but only people who were cool with working that way. Um, because what I was really coming back to is this model where it helps me. I mean, it's a, it's a way of talking to myself and interacting with myself to, to compose and arrange music this way. And it's what I needed. Um, it's, it's my voice. Um, and I had kind of turned that off forever. So, I was driven by a desire to be in a band and to, to be on the road with people and to make music live. that was more than I could just do on my own, but also I, I had to find a stable way to do that. And I realized that the process that I had abandoned, um, all those years ago and had tried to stay away from with everything I had, cause I didn't think it was a workable, way forward, um, I finally realized was, was the only way forward for me. And so it was a return to a very, uh, <laughs> insular process, I guess, it, just a very personal process, but, but also a form that meant I would be working with other people and collaborating, um, on some aspects of what we were doing. Do you feel free? Do you feel with all the, if it's the family, the past working on those things, does it, does it feel better? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I, this whole time, you know, since I was a kid, um, I've been trying to solve this problem that now I realize had to do with me just having 
not a strong enough connection with myself and uh through coming back to Pedro and um I don't know reconnecting with a lot of uh aspects of what I used to do uh musically it's it's been a part of a and writing the record you know which was was all about that reconnection with myself um I actually turned a corner, um, you know, not too long ago, a couple of months, I guess, where I kind of, I don't know. I just, I, I feel a lot better. Um, I kind of found the, the piece that I was looking for and, um, it was confusing and kind of unexpected the way that it, you know, it works out, but it's, Yeah. And me allowing myself this this model of making up rock and roll songs is a big part of it. I think that's great. I mean, you're allowing yourself, you're being open to that change. And for you to say a couple months ago, I'm feeling better, I'm, I'm at peace. The, the, the music itself, I think, is a part of that. I think the, this record hit me. I think I didn't like... Some records, you know, again, we talked about that earlier about like what hit you first. I'll say this mm-hmm. record hit me on the fifth time. I think the fifth time yeah. I might have been hearing Quiet as Friend and I was like, oh shit. And, <laughs> and, and I think that's that maybe the, again, it wasn't as, it wasn't, it wasn't as direct. It was more deeper. And that's what I think yeah. again, you were maybe going through it. Again, I'm assuming these things, but these are emotional things that I'm taking while listening and hearing your story, it just seems like it, 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 it's a, it was more, you know, things to peel back on this one. That resonates for me too, the way that you're talking about it. Um, yeah. And, and I guess I kind of, I'm into way homers, you know, like I like, I like, yeah, you want something that's appealing. That's somewhat appealing the first time, but all my favorite records, it took a minute, you know, Red Medicine, I, I hated that record when they came through on tour um, and they played almost the whole record and it was still cool, but man, I didn't like that record until about six months later. <laughs> and then it was my favorite Fugazi record, you know, for 10 years, it was my just dead favorite. And it just, it just takes a minute. And so I don't, I, I you know, I, I think my thing's an acquired taste in general. And, uh, but you know, but I hope to make things that if if it does wind up appealing to somebody that there's something to chew on, uh, you know, there. And so I, I like a, a good way homer for sure. What do you mean by that? A, a good way homer? Uh, like you don't, you don't get it till you're on your way home. Oh, I get it. Oh. <laughs> like, a, <laughs> like a joke that you don't get till you're on your way home from hanging out. It's like, oh, you put it into the oven. I get it. <laughs> And that is so me. I I totally get lost on this. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you're dreaming about or anything else that you're looking forward to? It could be music. It could be life. It, it doesn't matter. Anything else you're looking forward to or anything you're thinking about? Yeah. I mean, just, you know, just the day to day stuff starting to, with that piece comes a tiny bit of time and space um, and, and the ability to recognize that I need to, be careful to make time and space to, to do things right. And to, to have, you know, busyness is, is, 
is a killer, I think. Uh, for me, it has been. And so I'm trying to, part of that piece is just the, the clarity and the, the awareness to say no to certain things, even if you really want to do them. Um, sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm learning that and that's, that's making a lot of little things to look forward to, um, more interesting and meaningful time with my kids. Um, we're spending some really intentional time together, together every day and it's really fun. And they're rad. (laughs) They're neat people. So yeah, just, I'm excited about, about a calmer life. I love that. It's, it's, I mean, it is. It's like the simple things of, you know, the watching the movie or the walk in the park is probably more exciting yeah. than the movie or the amusement park, the memories. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice just to have time to, to enjoy stuff and to, to connect, you know. I'm, I, I just am learning to connect with myself more every day and really listen up because I, I made a habit of not taking my own feelings about stuff seriously for a long time and just get you in all kind of trouble. It's just it's no good. So it, I'm I'm slowly learning what my frequency is, what, how, how, how dense I can handle it. Because um, for years, I just was the king of chaos. I just say yes to everything and manage to barely make it all work. Um, but I'm trying to, I'm looking forward to a life of, yeah, some the opposite of that. I love it. David, that, th- those, those were all my questions. That's awesome. Thank you, Tom. This is really cool. Did you have fun? Yeah, I, absolutely. Okay, cool. I forgot, forgot where I was. <laughs> it was fun. You told me a story. You took me someplace. Well, that's, I mean, David, honestly, like I, some of these things that, you know, it's like, tell me about the record and go through this song. And it's like, it's deeper. And I think that's what's so interesting. I think about your stuff and me kind of going back and listening to things and thinking back, all of these things had stories. And um, I'm really happy that you took the time to, to do this. And I really hope when, when people hear this, they get a deeper understanding of, of yourself. And I'm really happy that you're connecting with yourself and you're sort of finding that happier moment. Cause the music's only going to get better because of that. I think. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I'm, I'm not worried about it. I don't think you got to be sad and sick to make, to make rad art. I never thought yeah. emo was sad. I didn't think I never no, thought it was sad. I always no. thought it was euphoric. Yeah. Well, yeah, a, a lot of it is the, yeah, absolutely. The, um, there is a, there is a, my stuff tended to be like from a grieving kind of angle. It felt mm-hmm. like more so than some other stuff. That's maybe another reason why it didn't totally fit. But when we would play with, you know, with Davey and the, the gang, like, um, why am I blanking on their name? Promise right? Uh, yeah, right. Promising. Um, you know, that was euphoric. Yeah. It was so fun. And it gave you such a good feeling. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. You know, um, just again, I just, I've been wanting to have you on for a really long time. And it just it means a lot that you spend a little time with me. Hell yeah. Thank you so much, Tom. Yeah, it was, it was great.
Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear. I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo. And Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted Volume 1 so you can order both. Check out the DIY publishing at anthologyofemo.com.